Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 24th, 2015. This is episode 1630 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Monday. That means it's time for your your emails to me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com is the email I sent them to. Make sure the, uh, the, the letters TSPC, like they're one word, are in the subject line, and then comment for Jack, question for Jack, video for Jack, whatever after that. As long as TSPC is in there, I will find it and dig it out of the spam monster box if it goes into there. And uh, you might hear it on a show like today. The best formula to follow to get on a show like today is to make your point or give me your link or whatever it is in one sentence or less. Uh, and then make your point to additional details after hitting the return key a few times so that I can scan it very, very quickly and get through my hundreds of emails a day. And likely that will get you pushed forward at least into the further consideration box. Um, can't get them all on the air, but try to get a wide variety on every week for a Monday show like this. This is a show by you. If you don't like the content on a show like this, get busy and tell me what you do want to hear about. Before we get into your feedback, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a whole lot to help take care of you, including to make sure help to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear... Gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them Sawtac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up Sawtac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have uh, the year being 1630, because that's the episode. Alex Shrugged has the following keyed up for us at tspwiki.com on the 1630 page. The year of the three musketeers, 
And we also have Welcome to Beantown, the founding of Boston, Massachusetts. And then we have the Day of Dupes, Cardinal Richelieu and the Queen Mother. I'm going to read the Year of the Three Musketeers because I think that's one that everybody would be familiar with, not that most people aren't familiar with the concept of the city of Boston. But most people have heard of the Three Musketeers. If not, you've at least eaten a candy bar by that name. But it started out as a novel. The novel, The Three Musketeers, by Alexandre Dumas, won't be published until 1844. But the stories in the book are set in France between the years 1625 and 1631. This is an historical novel, so many of the characters are real people in a fictional plot while historical events surround them. D'Artagnan is a real person, though he is really nothing like the character in the book. Queen Anne of Austria, queen consort to King Louis XIII, is real filled with intrigues and tragic in many ways, really. Cardinal Richelieu is real and quite the villain, both in the story and reality, so these people were good subjects for speculation in a novel that will remain popular until the modern day. My take by Alex Shrug. Cardinal, Cardinal Richelieu has often been the subject of speculation in popular novels and films. From what I read in historical accounts, meaning real history books, he seems to have loved France and wanted to keep it whole as a national entity under the rule of a French king. To that purpose, he moved heaven and earth. That means a lot of people got pushed out of the way, good and hard. His spy network was real, and he really did manipulate the Thirty Years' War to pit the Protestant king Gustav II against the forces of the Holy Roman Emperor, a Catholic. A Catholic cardinal set that up, all for the sake of France, and apparently it worked. So as you are reading The Three Musketeers, if you ask yourself, could anyone really be this crafty and cold-blooded? The answer is yes. Someone really could be, because someone really was that crafty and cold-blooded. My take on this is a little bit different, right? So when I look at things like this, I can't help but think how many people believe something is true because a fictitious story that has some factual elements in it is what they know about the factual story through the lens of fiction. Things like Da Vinci Code spring to mind. There's tremendous amounts of fact. The lost symbol is loaded with fact. But there are people today that believe because something was part of pop culture or a novel or a movie that the movie's representation was more factual uh, than the actual story of what went on, whether it's a movie about a, a, a sniper right, or whether it's something like our version of what was going on in France in the 1620s, 1630s, with the novel The Three Musketeers. And I think it's important that we understand that this spans so many things. And then sometimes the reason people believe something is because it's plausible, not just because it's where they got it. For instance, recently I was reading some lamentations by some conservatives, very, very upset, very upset about the fact that many people from the liberal side of things, which are much better, by the way, I uh, think that Sarah Palin said stupid things like, I can see Russia from my house. When Tina Fey, in fact, in a Saturday Night Live skit, impersonating Sarah Palin, said, I can see Russia from my house. My thought on that, there's a lot of things that people attribute to Sarah Palin she didn't say that came from Tina Fey impersonating her. Last I checked, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s, Saturday Night Live has been making fun of politicians from the 1970s all the way up into the modern day. This is the only time I remember anyone who ever had so much of it stick to them in history is Miss Sarah Palin. Just maybe, just maybe, there's a reason. I'm just saying. Anyway, my take by Jack Spierko. If I upset you today, hold on. I'll probably upset you more before it's all over with. But uh, 
Let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys, if you do like this show, consider joining the Member Support Brigade, where you can help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode is what it comes out to if you do the math. Do that and you'll get a, a payback on your investment if you're buying things from guns to gardens and everything in between. We have so many discounts for you in the MSB. The membership more than pays for itself. You get to support the work we do here. And uh, I get to keep doing what I do, which is helping to inform, enlighten, and yes, even sometimes enrage you. And come on, you know what? If I didn't take you off once in a while, the show just wouldn't be the same. Anyway, with that, I, I don't want to start off uh, today's main content by taking anybody off, but... And I, because I kind of know when you tell somebody I told you so, you, you head toward the, you know, taking them off thing, especially if it hurt them in some way, and they didn't listen to what you told them. And this time around, I wasn't as blunt as I was the first time around when this happened years and years and years ago. Um, for many people that are not long-term listeners to the show, you may not be aware of this, But in 2008, when I started this show, for the first couple of months, I was literally screaming. I would say not really the first month, because the first month was the last part of June of that year. By the time we got into July and August, I was screaming, get out of the market, 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 get out of the market. Um, and that was going to be a major bloodletting, and I knew it was going to be a major bloodletting. Well, what's going on right now? Kind of a major bloodletting in the market. It, it doesn't look as bad as it did in 2008 yet. Will it get that bad? I don't know. But we did tell you several times in the past several weeks that there was no reason to have your money at risk. And if you want to know why I didn't go get out of the market, get out of the market, get out of the market, is because I didn't know when or how bad this crash was. I was making the decision a different way, the same way John Pugliano has been advising you to make this decision. What is the potential for gain if you stay in the market for the rest of 2015? And John and I told you there isn't one. There's no upside to 2015. We said that multiple times. Both of us did. And um, now you're seeing the market get beat up. What, what struck me crazy, just crazy struck me, was a little piece that I saw on television that I recorded with my iPhone, pretty poor quality video. I just rewound the DVR, and I had to put this on. Fox 4 Local News. Before I talk any more about this, let me go ahead and play this little blurb for you so you can... Just get a feel for how how true many of the things we tell you about media really is. Stocks tanked for a second straight day. Wall Street today was dramatic. The Dow was down more than 530 points. Global investors are worried by China's slowing economy, and their selling sparked an international sell-off. The Nasdaq dropped 171 points. The S&P 500 lost nearly 65 points. SMU economist Mike Davis was on the news at 5 o'clock with advice for those of you who have 401ks. This is one of those moments where you know markets are going to correct, you know there's going to be bad news. Uh, if people are watching their 401ks, my advice would be just to quit looking. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the market right now, but the fundamentals are still here. All right, again, I, I know that the audio uh, on that one is absolutely abysmal, but uh, it was one of those things like I have to, I, I just have to, you know, get a get this thing uh, recorded. And so I just hit the rewind button on the the DVR and uh, whipped out my iPhone and recorded it. It went on with life. And by the time I realized how bad the audio was, I had lost the opportunity to do it again. So uh, excuse the pops and, and blips there. But I think you got the important part. Uh, the advice from an expert is the fundamentals are still there and don't look at it. 
Um, and then this morning I awoke to pandemonium and special breaking news on Fox News as the market was just catapulting down another 500 points. And I'll talk about what all of this means in a second, but I want to start off with what the message from mainstream media is. This is the basics of the message. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Oh, this actually affects you. Don't pay attention. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Pay attention. Look at the bullshit. Look at the bullshit. Look at the bullshit. Oh, this? Oh, this? Yeah, this is costing you money. Don't, don't, don't look at that. And when I posted this on YouTube, you know, I didn't post it with a whole lot of commentary. Um, let me read you exactly what I wrote in the posting. Here it is. I put, if you actually need proof that the entire purpose of media and news is to keep you asleep and stupid, this time they just came right out and said it. If you are worried about your investments during a time when we know the market is going down, just don't look at it. This is what passes for an expert today. And somebody who's comment I deleted because I just wasn't in the mood to deal with the nonsense posted, aw, I was enjoying your permaculture videos. Why do you have to post this nutty political crap? Okay, see, nothing about that's political unless you're so invested in politics that you think whenever something bad happens and your guy is in charge that he individually is getting the blame. Okay, this is not about Barack Obama, who I'm sure this person was probably worried. Oh, look, see, you think Obama messed everything up? No. No, I'm telling you that the media tells you what to do, and the purpose of the media is to go back to sleep. And this expert comes out and makes two statements that should just boggle the mind of anybody paying attention. The first, again, don't look at it. That is just, that's your money. That's, that's your retirement. You're saving that for the long haul. This is what you're going to live on when you're an old man. This is one of the uh, big threat to it. We all knew this was coming. Now, they didn't know this was coming because they would have told you they knew if they knew they knew a few weeks ago. We all knew this was coming and this stuff happens and it's no big deal. Just don't look at it. And then the fundamentals are still there. Well, pray tell what fundamentals. What, what fundamentals are there for this market? The Fed dumping a bunch of money and liquidity into the market? Uh, with with multiple quantitative easings over the past five years, that's that's the only fundamental in this market right now. Earnings reports are weak. Global demand is weak. Unemployment is still high. It's sky high if you look at the real numbers, not the people that just aged off the report that still don't have a job. You look at the future of employment. The fundamentals are terrible. The fundamentals of this market are awful. So the fundamentals are still there. He's See, that's where you can actually be a, a bullshitter and be right at the same time. The fundamentals are still there. Yeah, they suck, just like they did before this became evident. Now, let's talk about more about what's going on right here. I'm getting emails from some of you guys really panicking. This is that second dip you talked about years ago, and here it comes, and the whole world's going to end. Ah! No. In fact, I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. I think in the next week, if you still want out of this market in 2015... There's going to be enough of a rebound that you can get out with very little to no loss and you can sit it out to see what happens because I believe this market will not maybe rebound to where it was but will significantly rebound this week as people who have dumped stocks to take profits buy back in and push the market about halfway back to where it came from. And for many of you, you need to understand this. Many of you have seen huge gains in your investments. And even with some loss, because you didn't exit earlier this year, 
you still have a chance to capture in many of those gains. I'm not saying don't dump your stuff today. I'm saying if it was me, I personally would not right now. I believe you'll see, you know, the market was down like 500 points this morning. I believe today, in interday trading, you'll see major rebounding as people who have dumped money, and I'll talk about that in just a second, come back. And in fact, it is 12.28 Central Standard Time. I have not looked at Google Finance at all today. The last thing I saw was a special report. I was on my way into my office this morning around 9 o'clock my time saying the market was down almost 500 points on the, on the Dow. I'm going to right now, pause the recording, I'm going to pull up Google Finance, and I'm, I'm going to be willing to bet that some level of rebound in a day has already occurred. And I'm not making this crap up, guys. Here we go. And I could be totally wrong, and I will not edit this out if I am. So the Dow is down right now. 227 points, or 1.38%, which means it's recouped almost half of its losses. This doesn't surprise me. I'm not saying this is over this week. I'm not saying you won't have another big dip and another return, and I'm not promising you anything here. I'm giving you my best guess, and I'm telling you that none of it matters to me personally because my money is either out of, out of stocks or in individual stocks that are paying good dividends that are largely unaffected by all this chaos which is exactly what I've told you that I've been doing for four years now. Okay, But this is why I think this is what's going on. The story that they're telling you on TV, well, the Chinese market's not growing, and nobody could have foreseen it. All of a sudden, the Chinese market collapsed, and it's come dropped, and that spurred a global sell-off of stocks all over the world because companies like McDonald's and, and Apple all do business in China. It's a big part of their business, and... There's just so much uncertainty and blah, 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 blah. Bullshit. Okay? Here's what's, here's what's going on. All of this stuff has been talked about for the past two quarters. Slowing growth, weakening, weakening commodity prices, weakness in the oil industry, etc., etc. None of this is a surprise to anyone. None. What happened is the Fed, with quantitative easing, punched massive amounts of liquidity into this market. That means they put a lot of money in. Okay, they, they, they took the Monopoly game, and they opened five more boxes of Monopoly. They didn't put in all the new pieces and all the new boards. They just took all the money out of the other five boxes and dumped it into the banker's hands for the Monopoly game. Okay, They did that. That put this false liquidity in the market. On the other side of this, there has been some resumption of growth in the economy here and there. Then they fake the numbers with false GDP by including things in GDP that have never been included before. When we actually had declining GDP claiming it was going up, they gave confidence to the market and money has flowed. And in a fractional reserve system, if money flows, all the boats seem to rise as the tide rises with it. And even you get some slack tide and things like that where the boats come down a little bit. In the end, they all stay pretty good. This has created a massive profit. You have to remember that in 2009, the Dow got down in the 6,000s. And today it's sitting in 16,000s, more than doubled. Now, a lot of these institutional traders have made a lot of money along the way, collaring stocks, buying it and selling it, dumping it, recycling it. But in the end, there's been a lot of buy and hold going on. Companies have bought their own stock back and held their own stock. Okay? And they've had massive appreciation in these markets. 
all while something called high-frequency trading has been skimming the market. And high-frequency trading is simply that the trades are made and processed and remade in a matter of seconds to make very small profits on very large amounts of money over and over and over and over and over again by a computer. And there's companies that are actually paying more money for a computer box, a, a, a stack of servers in a co-located facility in New Jersey than they are, say, paying for from Pennsylvania because even with the speed of fiber optic cable, that little bit of, uh, of closer distance to the exchange is giving them an advantage on, on electronic high-frequency trading. So that's been going on. And that's created market liquidity beyond. So not only has the Fed pumped all this money and given all these institutions all this money and then cut interest rates to where all these institutions were forced to stick their money in the market. Banks said, you know what? I, I, we, we can't make any money right now with, with, with short-term paper or, or mid-term paper, government bonds like we usually do. That's our little, our little incestuous scam. We, we borrow the money for 1% and loan it back to them at a higher percent. It's, it's so to the bone it can't be done. We've got to invest in stocks. And in many instances, they bought their own stocks, artificially increasing their dividends. All this is going on. Now the stock market is rocking and rolling at like 16K, headed for 17K. It starts to get weaker. It starts to get weaker. It starts to get weaker. All of a sudden, all the institutional money just said the following. You know what? It's coming down. And the bigger thing they said is, you know what? We can make it go down. And you know what? There's no upside to 2015. If we leave our money in there, we're not going to make any money now. So let's pull our money out. Let's take our profits. Let's wait and see what happens. And when they all panic... And they all have their heads cut off. We can buy back. And even if the market only returns to half of where it was, like let's say you have a 2,000 point drop in the Dow, and it only comes back a thousand by the end of the year, we still make a lot of money, and they're the ones that lose. And I think that's what's going on right now. I really do. I think this is, uh, this is the only play for these people to make any money this year off of the stock market. And they can't make money anywhere else. So unless something else comes out, Another shoe drops. I don't see this market running down, you know, down to 10,000 or below this year. What happens next spring, late winter? I don't know. I don't know. There's all kinds of shoes out there, but it's going to take another one dropping, and we'll talk about one that could drop a little bit later in today's show. So what would I do if I were you? If I were you and I took the advice that we gave you earlier this year, which is get out of the way, I wouldn't risk playing this right now as being it's going to recover, so buy in. I really wouldn't. I would keep my profits, and I would sit back, and I would look for opportunities for my money. If I got hit by this, it's going to be about your risk tolerance and your conversation with your financial advisor. There's two ways to look at it. One, unless you invested in the market this year, you, you, you probably have a, a pretty good return you're looking at on your money. I mean, if you invest, if the mo most of the money you, you have in the market was invested, let's say 2013 or prior, you're still looking at good appreciation on your money. So if you can't stomach the rest of this year and, and what's going to happen with this big downturn, you could take your profits now and it's less than you could have taken, but it's still profit. Imagine the line goes from, you know, early 2012 right to where it is today without the hill in the middle, and you decide this is a place to get out. It's still a good return. Or 
you can hold your guns and you can watch very carefully. And when you think enough of it has come back that we're not going to get any more for the rest of the year, and I don't know where that is, you could bail then and basically do the same thing. But you're not going to see the stock market back over 18,000 this year. You might not see it back over 17. But, but my, my prediction is you'll see it right about there some point before the end of the year. I am not saying that when it gets there, there's no potential for it to crater again. And I am not saying you should wait for that number to sell your funds or your stocks. I'm saying you have to make every investment decision individually. But I'm also telling you that we told you earlier this year there was no reason to risk your money. And this is the big thing that I want to start getting to people's minds when it comes to their investing. It is actually much easier to accept this type of analysis for let's, let's, let's park the money in cash or cash equivalents for a while than it is to accept the market's going to crash. It's much easier to determine that this is the case than that the market's going to crash. Now, 2008, 2009, I have all kinds of people that think I'm an oracle for that. I'm not. That was the most obvious financial crash was coming in our history. That was so telegraphed. That was so obvious. If you were just paying attention, you knew that was coming. This one here, the reason you should expect that it would be coming is because the market was just floundering at around 18,000, right? Just kind of just floundering around and not going anywhere. And nothing good was happening. And there's no upside. So eventually, with that much profit in the market, some people are going to take it. But isn't it easier to just look out and go, what is the maximum return I think I can expect on this market by the end of the year? Can I see the market going up 10 points between August and, and, and December 31st? And if the answer is no, well, is it five? And if the answer is no, okay, then whatever you're risking your money for, you're risking it for 2 to 3 4% at best. And you're risking a big loss. And that's why we phrased it the way that we did. There's no upside. So it's like going into a casino and you're going to play roulette and there's 37 numbers on a table. And let's say if 0, 0 or 37 comes up, you lose 30% of your money. If any other number comes up, you win 1% return. 1%. So you bet $100. If you lose that spin, if those two numbers come up, you just lost, not $100, but $30. Now you have $70. But if any other number comes up, you get 1%. $101. You want to play that wheel? That's the stock market in 2015. Unless you're making individual stock choices, if you're buying index matching funds, which I think is some of the worst advice that most people follow, then that's all you're doing. You're risking 30% or more losses for a potential to make a dollar or two per hundred. So what you have to do now with this dip, and again, I'm, I'm going to hit refresh here. Let's see where we're at. Now we're down to 314, so now we're coming back. So we have this up and down, up and down during the day. So the market went down by over 500, back up to only 250 down. Now another drop down to 314. What the hell is going on? I don't know. I don't know. 
I really can't tell you exactly what's going on, but I'll tell you that's what I think is going on. There's a lot of people making a lot of money with this right now. And the question is, where are they willing to let it go to before it attracts their own money back in? And, and, and I really don't know. I, I really don't. But I, I don't think you're going to see over the next month, you know, 2008 all over again. Where not only do we have this huge drop, but we knew... We knew it was going to keep going. We knew it was going to, nobody wanted to believe it, but there was no real recovery. You know, it just kept plummeting. And then by, by February of 2009, jeez. And, and do you know what it took in 2008? Uh, if you didn't, if you didn't get out anywhere in 2008, you were at the high point of 2008. It took you until about 2012 to get your money back. Now, here's the important thing to understand about that. All those years, if you'd gotten out of the way, even a little bit late, and gotten back in even a little bit early, instead of getting back to par, you would have been profitable with your investments. Extremely profitable. So, you you, you now have the situation in front of you you have. I, I can't tell you what to do. Um, I'm not going to scream get out. I'm not going to scream stay in. Uh, my belief is... Do you have to take the, the last bit of advice I have for you and you have to make a decision based on this and your own goals? If someone had a bunch of money right now and said that they were interested in buying into this market on this dip, would I make a buy recommendation? No. Too much indecision, too much potential for additional loss, too much risk, let it play out. So... Again, I hate saying things that are, are like direct advice when I when I have not full clarity on what's going on. One way to look at that would be is if you have $200,000 in this market right now, if you got out of it and sat there with $200,000 in cash while you figured it out, it would be the same as if you had $200,000 in cash not buying into it right now. But you got to look at your own losses. I can't believe that there's that many people out there right now with real major losses Unless they invested almost all of their money in the last 12 months. Almost everybody out there right now holding on to stocks is holding on to gains and could take those gains now and wait. And while I'm not telling you to do that, that's what my gut is right now, that it's safer. But I hate saying it when I, I think there's a real chance the market could come up three to 500 points in the next 14 days. But I think there's just as much chance it could go down another three to 800 points. And if it does that, that won't be the bottom. If it, if it, if it goes down like it already has again, then there will be tons of people that will make the decision I just put in front of you later, and they'll trigger further sell-offs. And they'll push a bottom. And watch the political bullshit that gets rolled out over this. Let's move on to something completely different so that this doesn't turn into the financial hour and a half. How much different could we possibly go? Try this one. This is from Jeff in Nova Scotia, Canada. When is it okay to kill a meat chicken that does not seem to be thriving? Details. We raise three runs of 25 meat kings each year. We have several hundred square foot area in which we free range the chickens. They really seem to do very well in that environment. Even at a week old, we have them out and they are scratching around, digging up bugs, worms, and grubs, etc. 
We remove their food at night for about a 10-hour period. They are hungry in the morning, but it seems to us that they are much more mobile and end up with less of a fat layer when we process them after nine weeks. The average is six to eight pounds when processed. Still, we have one or two per run that just don't seem to be able to keep up with the others. I have one hen at the moment that I have to nurse along and keep her separate. She rarely leaves the coop. I will give her food and water on her own. She just lays there and doesn't move. The other birds don't pick on her or anything. She's not gaining weight and seems to be plateaued around two pounds, whereas other birds are at four to five at seven weeks. It is, okay, is it okay to cull that bird and use it for meat? I don't think it has an illness. It just seems to be unable to cope. Is it safe to process a bird in this condition? When these birds die, I generally just bury them or throw them in the compost. I hate to waste uh, food on a bird that is not going to provide food for my family. Thanks in advance. I'm a listener since almost the beginning. I've heard all your podcasts, many of them several times. Every afternoon, I open a browser and hit refresh until your new show pops up. Keep up the good work. Well, Jeff, um, in, in in the majority of instances, I would say there's no problem using that bird. And I think that if you've been doing three runs of 25 birds uh, a run at this point, what you, you probably need to do is get to where you identify these birds a little bit quicker. And then you have Cornish game hens. When you butcher them, my advice would be to look very carefully at the liver, uh, look very carefully at the heart. If those two organs look healthy, if there's no discharge, if the bird's not really acting weird, it's just not thriving. What you're talking about here is what you call failure to thrive. This bird's just not thriving. The genetics just aren't there. It's a dwarf. It's a mutant. It's, it's a midget. I mean, that's, that's kind of how you have to look at this. And what I see to that, then, is, I mean, you know, you, you process that bird at a pound almost by hand without even really needing a knife when they're that small. You pull out the breast uh, and, and maybe the thighs and legs like you're doing a quail. And, and you just throw it out on the grill and be done with it. If you're, when you pull out the liver in the heart, if you find a bad-looking liver, yellow and spotty and weird, a bird that young, that's something's wrong. If there's any kind of parasitic infection, holes like flukes or worms, then that's a bird I would probably discard. Same with the heart. If the pericardium, which is the little sac around the heart, is clear and the heart looks healthy, fine. If it's full of like a mucusy-looking fluid, then, then I'm probably not going to eat that bird. I mean, in the end, you're talking about... Probably a half a pound of meat. I mean, that's really... when If you look at a bird that's two pounds, it, 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 it's a bird that's designed to be six to seven pounds. Everything's cattywampus with the meat that's there. So it's not really worth getting in a tizzy over. It's not really worth being that concerned about it if you decide to discard it. If there was anything about it that you looked at that just didn't look right or feel right or smell right then I would go ahead and discard it, throw in a compost heap as compost activator. Otherwise, you know, it's a snack. And, and I don't see any problem with that. And I, I, I think that we as keepers need to, especially when we're doing meat runs anyway. Now, if I'm running egg, you know, a, a bunch of ducks that are going to be egg producers, and I got one that's kind of not keeping up with the rest, but it's not sick, and, and, and it, it might take her three or four more months to start laying eggs, but she doesn't seem like she's suffering. And she's just kind of not really keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. You know, I'll feed her, and as long as she seems okay, you know, sooner or later she probably will catch up. But when you're talking about meat-specific breeds, 
that are designed to grow fast, sometimes they just don't and they're never going to catch up. And if you keep her alive till slaughter date, all you're doing is feeding a bird that's not going to grow. You're just wasting money. You have what you would call a useless eater at this point. And one way or another, I would go ahead and call it out of your flock. I mean, even if you were going to try to keep one of these meat birds around for reproduction, which isn't the best thing to do, certainly, um, it certainly wouldn't be one that you would want to uh, you know, propagate the genetics of anyway. So let's get this bird out of the flock. Let's, let's just get rid of it. Let's accept that death early sometimes is what we have to do as keepers of animals. I, I had a bird I mentioned last week on the air that I, I came out and it came out of the coop and she was basically dragging herself with her wings across the ground. Um, it's a young bird. I didn't want to kill her. I, I ate her Friday night. She, I'll tell you right now, these Mets are hybrid layers, one of the best laying ducks you'll ever find. I think when I have like a point where I say, okay, 50 of these birds are old enough now, that they need to be processed and replaced. So six months before that date, you're, you're ordering your new birds to replace them with. I'm have a massive skin and cut and drop and grind, and I'll make you know uh, 50 pounds of duck sausage out of them because they just are not a, a quality bird like a Rowan is or a Muscovy is or uh, you know most of the Cayuga. They, they, they really kind of tough and chewy. And that could have to do with the animal being stressed and cortisol, but John Dowie told me the same thing. So that those birds, to me, are birds I really don't want to slaughter. I want to, I want to keep that bird alive as long as possible. But if I have one that I know is just going to have lackluster existence, it's not going to live its life to the fullest, it's not going to produce for me, then one of the harsh realities of what we do is I have to cull that one. I have to cull that one. So... I wouldn't have any regrets whatsoever. Next question, kind of in the same vein. We're talking about uh, feeding animals here. Kevin in New Jersey says, Hi, Jack. First advice, Kevin, get out of New Jersey. I hate to say it, but I, I really do feel that way. Anyway, I am trying to grow sprouts, but they get moldy. I soak them 24 hours and put them in a small covered bucket the next day. I don't think my chickens will eat moldy seeds. And if I leave them out, the squirrels chow down and there's nothing left by the time I get home from work. Any suggestions are appreciated. Thanks for all you do, Kevin in New Jersey. Okay, first of all, you got to find another solution to your squirrels than covering the bucket. If you cover a bucket that you're using to sprout sunflower seeds in, you absolutely, positively, 100% will get mold, and you'll get it over and over again. You're actually creating the perfect conditions for it. So we can't do that. So for anyone that doesn't know my sprouting method, I don't know that it's mine, but I'm the only one I've seen really pushing it. I just take five-gallon buckets and I drill a bunch of holes in the bottom of them. I take one five-gallon bucket that I don't drill holes in the bottom of. I take my seed and I soak my seed the day before. And then I dump that seed the next day into a bucket with holes in it and I rinse it really good with water. Uh, and then I set that up on something where it can drain like a cinder block. And I do that till I have about three, three to four buckets in the system, depending on how much growth I want from my sprouts. And I get to a point where I have like four buckets that have sprouts in them and one soaking bucket. And by that time I'm ready to feed, I take my, my four day bucket, I dump it out and feed my birds with it. And then I dump the water with the new seeds into that empty bucket and every bucket moves down the, 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 the ramp, so to speak. And then every day there's a new bucket full of seed. Okay. I have not ever really had problems with mold. 
except when I've had some house sitters that don't understand the system I just gave you and set the bucket with holes in it in the soaking bucket to soak them for a second and third day and turn them into fermented stink. Other than that, I haven't had any problems with mold. Until the one time it started to get a little bit moldy, my birds started wanting more and more and more, so I wanted to increase my yield. So instead of adding buckets, I went up to I was doing about five big scoops to the bucket, and I was getting a really deep layer of sprouts, and they were getting a little bit moldy. So the solution to that is add four more buckets with holes and one more bucket without holes and run two sets of buckets. And, you know, stick to when you put the seeds in the bucket, before you soak them, you have about an inch deep of seeds, an inch to two inches. And you're going to get a nice sprouted puck, so to speak, out of that. And you're going to still get some airflow and movement between them, okay? Now, part of why you're having a problem is, well, because you're doing this in New Jersey, New Jersey sucks. I'm on a kick for beating up on New Jersey today due to some other things that I, I had sent to me today. But anyway, um, seriously, New Jersey sucks for sprouting seeds, as does most of the Northeast, for mold issues because your humidity is so much higher. So now you take a humid environment, you put stuff in a bucket that's all wet, and, and on top of it you put a lid on it. You know, you're going to get mold. So we got to get rid of the lid. If, you ins if, if you're in a situation where you're saying, look, man, i got to have something here. The squirrels are getting in there. Take your lid. Cut a hole in your lid. A, a bit, you know, leave about one inch border of your holes and take some, some quarter inch hardware and pop rivet it onto your lid. Your, your hardware cloth, like your, you know, your fencing quarter inch, pop rivet that onto your lid and then snap your lid on so you have just the same airflow, uh, but you, you, your squirrels can't get in. Or move it somewhere where the squirrels can't get to. Okay? But you gotta get the lid off of there. Next. Even though I don't have mold problems, I have accepted the fact that some of you have mold problems because of humidity. Again, I don't have much humidity here. Chris Prater was here a couple weeks ago, and he got up. I think it was about 6.45 in the morning. I happened to get up because I heard him get up. and came outside with some coffee, and he's out here touching the grass. He goes, where's the dew? We don't have no dew. Not this time of year, anyway. You know, it's 6.30 in the morning, the sun's just coming. The grass is bone dry. There's not a drop of dew on it. Dew point is so far away from where we are right now. So we have an environment that's a little bit uh, easier to, to stay off the mold on. But I have come up with some techniques to reduce the mold. And the first is the one I already gave you. Go with smaller amounts and more buckets. You know, And for a lot of you guys, I'm feeding 120, 130 birds right now. I got 60 more coming, right? So I got to feed a lot more than you do. A lot of you guys... You could put a half inch of seed in your bucket. If you're feeding a dozen or so birds, you're not feeding them this, you're supplementing this. right? So a half inch of seed in the bottom of the bucket is going to result in about a four inch deep puck. That's plenty every day for a small flock. So cut down the number of seeds. That's, that's first and foremost. The next thing to do, some people advise you to put a cap full of chlorine bleach per gallon of water in your soak. This is not the most horrible thing you can do, but I think it's a, a harsher chemical that is necessary to do the job. And before you result to the, to the cap full of chlorine bleach per gallon, use about a tablespoon to a tablespoon and a half of hydrogen peroxide, standard 3% hydrogen peroxide that you buy from a supermarket for 69 cents a bottle or so, uh, a tablespoon or two per gallon of water. And if you're doing a half inch of... Uh, cedar less, a gallon of water is about all you need. 
In fact, a little trick would be, the seeds are going to change the level of where a gallon in your bucket is. Take your soaker bucket, put your, your pre-measured amount of seeds in there, take a one-gallon known volume of water, okay, dump that water into your, your bucket, and then take a, a Sharpie and make a mark. And then you know how much water to add to your bucket. So if you need to do two gallons of water, for instance, then you put two gallons of water in there and mark that. Then every day you, you can put a mark, dump your seed into that mark, and then add your water to that mark. And as you're adding your water, drop a tablespoon or so of hydrogen peroxide in there. This won't hurt anything. You can use hydrogen peroxide in small amounts in your stock tanks to help keep them clean. And your animals can drink that. And it's fine. And it's a much less harsh chemical than chlorine bleach, though it may not be quite as effective. So consider trying it first and then going to the cap full of chlorine bleach, not in addition to, but instead of the peroxide, if that doesn't work. The next thing is cut your soaking time in half. Sunflower seeds do not need 24 hours. Generally, I put my, if I do my seeds in the morning to soak, it's just to save time and because I get away with it. Okay? The best procedure would be to put your seeds in the soak in the evening and then put them into the, the, the sprouting bucket in the morning and wait till evening to put your next soak on. Ten hours, eight hours for sunflower seeds is plenty of time to soak. They'll, they'll take up plenty of water and they'll be ready to go. The next thing is when you put them in the bucket, especially the first day that you put them in the bucket with the hose, the holes in it, if you're in a place where you're getting mold, take your garden hose and rinse through a gallon or two of clean water. Really get the good rinse off them. And if you do all that, I, I, I doubt you'll be getting mold anymore. And again, the big thing is less is more. Grow a smaller amount per bucket. Buckets are cheap. You know, you can get them for free at grocery stores, and it doesn't have to be five-gallon buckets. They're just real convenient. They stack really nice. And when you go to dump the water out and rinse, rinse through the next day, you can just stack them all up and dump it in the top one and then rinse it out and rinse it through and set them all back up. It's just real convenient. But you can use, I've seen people use paint trays. I've seen them use mixing trays, like, like the, the small cement mixing trays for mixing like one bag of cement. They sell for like six bucks, um, and those those will last forever. Longer five gallon buckets after about two years, you usually end up with them getting cracks and fractures, and they break down from UV destabilization. The the mixer tr trays, those things will last damn near forever. You can use anything, but try to keep if you're having mold anyway, because I'm, I'm I mean I can put two to four inches in and get almost no mold at all. But if you're trying to keep the mold down, try to keep your initial layer of dry seed to a half inch depth. And if you do that, you're not going to have a lot of problems. And again, you might have to put a second set of buckets in, but it's really not any more work. It's, if, you're, if they're all set up together, it's not any more work. Now, your squirrels, you're going to have to think about what they do about this. I understand the squirrels coming in there and eat your seed. Um, you know, can you leave it in your garage instead or put some kind of a lid over top of them that allows airflow? Like just build a, a, a frame. You could build like, like two-by-fours and build a frame that sits over four buckets And then just put hardware cloth on that frame and just set that up on top of there. Um, got another plan for you, except people in New Jersey probably put you in jail for it. Um, turn those squirrels into grilled squirrel. I think I gave away my grilled squirrel recipe last week, but basically skin the squirrel, quarter the squirrel, coat it with Chef Keith's uh, uh, Mon uh, Montana steak seasoning, sear it three minutes on one side, two minutes on the other, wrap in full indirect heat, Medium low on the grill for an hour, half an hour. Beautiful. So how do we get these squirrels? You use squirrel traps. What's a squirrel trap, you say? Go to Home Depot, get them. Big old rat traps. 
Yeah? Peanut butter, dead squirrels. That might solve your problem and put some extra meat in the table. Just a thought. With that, let's move on to another one here. Um, another gardening question. Don't worry, we're going to come back around to some other subjects that will depress you soon. But for right now, we're still sticking with some gardening. Uh, this is a simple one. This is from Derek in Tennessee. Are too many mushrooms in a garden bed a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if it was too many, it would definitely be a bad thing. The question then would be, is there such a thing as too many? It says, I recently brought a truckload of compost out of a composting facility for some raised beds for a fall garden. Just as my lettuce seedlings started to come up, I noticed some whitish-gray mushrooms. Now there are hundreds of them everywhere. Should I be concerned about these mushrooms shading out my seedlings or causing detrimental effects? Should I try apply controls such as neem oil? Do you have any recommendations? Thanks, Derek in Tennessee. No, don't do anything unless, unless you actually are getting a mechanical level of interference. Meaning I have a mushroom cap big enough and my little lettuce seed is sitting under going, sunlight please. And if that's the case, mushrooms are real easy to do this with. Just reach down and pull, pull the ones that are in the way out and let them right there on the ground and let them go back and do their thing. What you probably got when you bought your compost is all or a portion of it is mushroom compost. And it was already used to produce mushrooms of some edible variety. These are probably not the same mushrooms you're seeing growing. Usually when you buy mushroom compost, that somebody might have grown something like white button mushrooms in uh, or something like that. That's the most commonly farmed mushroom around here is white button mushrooms, uh, especially in something like a, a compost medium. Uh, then, then what comes up next are some sort of wild, crazy mushroom because you've got all this existing fungal hyphae that's in there. It was all suppressed by the farmer to get the yield that they wanted. And now you've got this really great kind of second spawn uh, that's there. And, and this, the, the, these, you know, these other mushrooms, these other fungi that, that had managed to, to get inoculant into the compost from either during the production or after the production, now they have their chance. Kind of the white button mushroom has done its thing. It's kind of spent. Uh, it's used up the stuff in the compost that it most likes to consume. And it's not really a mushroom that does well in a garden in the sun. It likes to be in the dark and the cool. So it's suppressed. And these other ones that have just been going, give me a chance. Now they, I've got my chance. I'm going to grow. And what that means is they, they, that means there is a wonderful network a fungal hyphae formed and being formed in your soil. And there's nothing wrong with that. The only way you can have too many, again, is if you have a mechanical level of interference. If you have mushrooms blowing your seedlings out of the ground, then those, those mushrooms have to go away. Now, here's the thing. They're going to fruit and kind of dry up really quick. There'll be abundance of them, and then blah. Don't eat them. There's no, no telling what they are, and they're probably not high quality or anything either. Never eat any mushroom unless you're a thousand percent sure of what it is. And as Larry Santoyo said, not Larry Santoyo, uh, Paul Stammen says, do not eat LBMs, little brown mushrooms. There's so many lookalikes and so many that are good and so many that'll kill you. Don't mess with LBMs, use known varieties, etc. So I wouldn't worry about it. But again, if they are getting in the way, then mechanically remove, i.e. pull them out, knock them over with a hoe, whatever, in the areas where they're interfering mechanically with your other plants. Okay, those of you bored with the uh, agricultural, homesteading, gardening topics, we are uh, about to uh, turn a corner here and get back into some more of the survival-y stuff for the real world that some of you claim anyway. Um, Detroit. So I have an email here from Chris, and Chris says, Hi, Jack. 
shit hit the fan has arrived in Detroit. Detroit's unemployment is up, leaving less taxes coming in, leaving less cops on the street. I have always been the type of person that doesn't prepare for the zombie apocalypse. I prefer for, I prefer for things like post-Hurricane Katrina. I don't prepare for a nuclear ice age. I prepare for the ice storm that hits Atlanta, stranding thousands of people on the interstate. So when it comes to economic collapse that makes the government disappear, leaving everyone to fend for themselves, I think Detroit is a perfect blueprint for what might, might that actually look like. Like your thoughts here. Uh, thanks, Chris. And he's got an, a link to um, an article on Fox News uh, about a uh, police chief in Detroit saying, Packing heat in Detroit? Motown residents answer police chief's call to arms. Uh, read, a, read a little bit of this for you guys. Detroit residential resident Daryl Stanberry doesn't navigate the streets of the Motor City without his licensed handgun, and it has already saved his life once. I never leave home without my weapon, he said. You never know what you'll encounter. It was 2011 when Stanbury stopped by a gas station on Six Mile Road after attending his son's football practice. After filling up the tank of his SUV, he left the car running and went inside to pay, only to spot a man jumping behind the wheel. I went back over and told him to get out of my car. Stanbury, 46, a former bar owner who is now a college student, uh, he told me to get the hell out of there and drove off. Stanbury stood frozen as the bandit peeled away, but then felt his heart pound where the thief doubled, when the thief doubled back. His hand moved down to his hip and gripped his holstered 45-6 Sauger as the man who had stolen his car bore down on him. I saw him pulling out his gun to shoot me, Stanbury recalled, so I pulled out my gun and shot him. The shot went through the windshield and hit its target. A criminal with a long record who made a short-lived getaway before crashing into a tree and dying. Stanbury's claim of self-defense was never questioned by local cops. In a city plagued by chronic unemployment and crime and gar guarded by a dwindling police force, residents of Detroit are increasingly taking protection for themselves, their families, their property, and their own hands. Those who do so responsibly have the blessing and backing of Detroit Police Chief James Craig. Quote, when you look at a, the city of Detroit, we're kind of leading the way in terms of urban areas with law-abiding citizens carrying guns, end quote, Craig said. The chief's call to arms, which first came in December of 2013, has been answered by thousands of men and women tired of being victims and eager to reclaim their beloved, beleaguered city. In 2014, some new 1,169 handgun permits were issued, while 8,102 guns were registered with Detroit's police department many to prior permit holders who bought new firearms. So in, so far in 2015, nearly 500 permits have been issued by the department and more than 5,000 guns have been registered. Well, let's leave the gun registration out and this all sounds like kind of a good thing. Except, understand this, as much as I support the Second Amendment and the right of, of individuals in this country to defend themselves, I mean, let's be honest, that's the whole point. It's not just about a gun to defend yourself. It's about the right to self-defense, and the gun being one of the best implements from that. Uh, I must admit that Fox News is incredibly Republican-leaning, and if it sounds good for the Second Amendment, they might embellish it a little bit. There was a report out recently that like half of what's on Fox News is factually inaccurate. I, I think that probably applies to the other networks, too, uh, especially to their pet things. So it may not be as rosy a picture as is being painted here uh, as far as licensed gun owners in the city of Detroit, but it does seem to be a trend. Uh, and you do have a police chief basically saying, listen, man, 
we can't guarantee that we'll be there. You need to take care of yourself. And that's starting to happen in other cities. And I guess the crux of the question is, do I see, instead of patriots the coming collapse, right? The, 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 the stereotypical survivalist nirvana fan fiction breakdown of the whole country, of a whole bunch of cities that look a whole bunch like Detroit. Yeah, but that's not the only thing I see. I think that's the, maybe the important. I don't think every city will end up that way. I think some cities will end up worse. And a lot of cities will end up very, very similar, and some cities will end up better. But yeah, I, I think this is what this entire evolution of our society is going to look like. Because I don't think the government's going to collapse and go away. And, and this is what I think you need to understand. There are still enough people in the government in Detroit that will come out and get in the way of people doing things that should be legal that are currently illegal whether it be zoning issues, what you do with your own property. There's plenty of tyranny left in Detroit. The first place cities cut back is in actually protecting and providing service that's legitimate to citizens. Why? Those things aren't profitable. Those things aren't profitable. If a, if a guy breaks into your house, and I send my two officers out who, who do manage to catch him, I'm not saying the cops don't. The cops want to get this guy. Don't 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 get me wrong here. I'm talking about the cold calculating money decisions at the top. Those cops want to get that guy. Ninety percent of cops are really great guys. Okay, I think a lot of them could use a little more training and a little more understanding of what their oath is to and to the Constitution. But in the end, they're good guys doing the best they can. Ten percent of you are oath breaking scum and should not have a badge to do mall security. Okay, and you're the ones causing most of the problems. And the other 90% of you, I'll just throw it out here, you need to fix that shit. And not, oh, we'll take care of it. No, when you see it, you need to say something and do something immediately. All right? But those 90% of cops, they want to get that guy. But let's say they do. Okay? I send them out. They take a report. The guy's stupid, and he's walking across the street. You go, there he is. They go get him. They put him in jail. What profit is there for the city of Detroit? There's actually an expense. There's actually an expense. I have to now feed and clothe this guy. I'm already short on money. I'm not saying I don't want to put him in jail. I'm saying that's the way we got to look at it. But if I go bust somebody with enough marijuana to instead of put them away, put a huge fine on them and make them pay or threaten them with prison, well, that's profitable. If I set my officers up, on a Saturday afternoon, pay them overtime when they need it to do nothing but write tickets all day long. That creates an income. If I send out code enforcement to go out and look for fines, like this fence is leaning too far, and find a person in a neighborhood that hasn't totally decomposed yet, and they're willing to pay because they don't want to face the state, that's profitable. And I could keep going. But there's profit in it for cities to enforce some regulations, and there's expense in it for them to enforce others. So it's not a complete willful, we're just going to let criminals get away with it and go after the people that were just harassing. It's, in the end, these things produce revenue, and we don't have enough. So then you start to have to make decisions about what you enforce, when and how. And then you also have to start doing something else, and that is reduce the body count of people that are not profitable. That's why your street cops 
that are actually out there looking for crime prevention are the first people to get cut. That's why they pay overtime for people to write tickets, but they don't pay overtime for people to work cold cases. Talk to some of your cop buddies, if you have any, and ask them when the last time is they ever knew anybody in their department that was being paid overtime to work on burglary cases. And ask them if they'll be honest with you when the last time is somebody was paid to work overtime, specifically running a ticket operation, a sting. And some smaller departments, they may say no to either. But in a lot of these big departments, I have enough officers on record with me saying this happens, that I know it does, that they'll say, anybody wants overtime this weekend, report to Sergeant so-and-so. We're going to be running tickets on you know, the interstate down here between this place and that place. Yeah, interstate. Yeah, I said that for local cops. All right? It happens. It does happen. It absolutely does. So is Detroit the archetype for the, the the downfall and possibly the leveling and rebuilding of America? Could be. Could be. But understand something about America. Did, did, I think a lot of people can't really understand. America is not like Spain. Spain is a very similar country all through its borders. So is Mexico. There's some big differences in Canada, but not what we have. There's probably not a nation out there with larger regional differences than there is than, than there, there is with America. Very few nations are our size to begin with. You got China, but there's like a there's definitely a common bond there all the way across, racially, culturally, etc. Um, Russia, that's huge, right? But there's a whole bunch of it with nothing in it. This country is so different. And the way people respond in Dallas to this type of thing compared to Fort Worth is actually different, let alone the Dallas-Fort Worth area versus Philadelphia, versus Atlanta, versus Los Angeles, versus Seattle, versus the, the, the smaller town areas of the Midwest. This is all, all going to be different. So there's some basic commonalities, stress, reduction in support, people having to look after themselves. But then who takes over? Citizens that stand up or gangs? Or both? And how do they deal with each other? Because sooner or later, no matter how much you hate your enemy, if you can't get rid of them, you have to figure out how to deal with them. This country's headed for some tough shit, guys. It really is. But there's a lot of opportunity in it, too. We're just going to have to look after and take care of ourselves a lot more. And think about it. For many of us, that's what we say we want. Maybe we don't want it this way, but you got to take what comes when it comes. The sad part is, like I said, my biggest fear is these all of the losses will be around the legitimate services that government does provide. Whether you think they should be there or not, the things that really do protect people, that's what they always cut teacher salaries first. Before they cut, before they cut administrator salaries, they cut teacher salaries. They always cut the street cop. Right? They always cut the guys that are doing investigations and whatever. You know? The, the, the departments that are profitable, they leave those in place. You know, they'll cut everything. They'll still have the traffic cameras going and writing automatic tickets for a, for a, a traffic light. Well, one cop's sitting there going, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, 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 no. That's basically what they do. These, these traffic light cameras, There's actually an officer that watches them, and every time the camera says somebody's guilty, he watches it and says, yes, we can make the case this is, or no, that's a false positive. And if you contest it, 
if you're allowed to contest it, because some municipalities, the way they set it up, you can't even contest it. But if you do, that's the officer that shows up. So you can report that one guy. How many tickets can he do a day? That guy will be there. And there'll be other guys that will come get you if you don't pay. Long after they've cut the police force in half. That's something we have to understand. Just because government shrinks doesn't mean the parts of it that cause tyranny will shrink. So we have to be smart and adaptive to this new reality. By the way, as I move on, a little refresh. Uh, 1.19 p.m. Central Standard Time. The Dow Jones average now down 4.08, almost back to the losses that it was looking at this morning. Uh, of course, it's 2.19 Eastern Time, so we are three hours from the closing bell. It could be an ugly day by the end of the day. Only time will tell. We shall see. Um, but sticking with financial problems and off of the gardening for a minute, let's talk about another uh, looming crisis. And I talked about another shoe dropping, and I, I think... This is one of the two that I'm most concerned about in, in, in the future with really causing an unraveling of all this financial bullshit that's, that's propping up a fake economy right now. Uh, this comes from Brian in Oklahoma. It says, from USA Today, student loan debt, America's next big crisis. Nothing surprising here, just that the mainstream news would even mention it. So let me read this article to you here. Um, student loan debt, America's next big crisis. Federal Reserve Bank of New York released its latest uh, report on household debt and credit developments. The news isn't good for student borrowers. As of the second uh, calendar quarter ending June 30th, seriously delinquent student loans, which the bank describes as those whose payments are 90 or more days past due, increased to 11.5% of the $1.19 trillion worth of educational loans versus 11.1% the first quarter. Realize this crisis is about four-tenths of a percent increase. Because those little things start to show us trends. That's why they feel that way. Before you dismiss four-tenths of one percent, almost as if I was reading ahead even though I wasn't, as a decimal dust, consider this. All student loans only make up 10% of all consumer debt. The amount of seriously past due student loan payments total nearly one-third of all seriously past due debt payments. Let me read that little factoid to you there again. Although student loans only make up 10% of consumer debt, the amount of past due student loan payments totaling nearly one, total nearly one third of all seriously past due payments. That means they make up 10%, but they account for one third of the seriously past due. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? What's more, the total of $1.19 trillion in outstanding education-related loans, only about half of that amount is actually in repayment at this time. The balance is deferred because the borrowers are still in school. What does that mean? That means you got to really think about this to understand what's happening here. This is why this scares me a hell of a lot more than the market having a, a, a major profit taking going on this fall. This scares, this scares me long term. There's something not being said in this, in, in the whole rest of this article, that you have to take in from that right there. What they're saying is, let's just say there's 1.2 trillion to make it nice and, and round, okay? So that's 600 million times two. Half would be about $600 million in student loans. So what they're saying is of that $1.2 trillion, $600 million of it 
is not even currently on payment schedule because the people holding the debt are still in school. So you have a third of all seriously passed loan debt coming from something that only makes up 10%, but only half of it's even capable. So now you have a third coming from 5%. That's their point. That's not the big... Some of you that have been listening a long time and have started learning to look deeper already know where I'm going with this. If you do and you get this right, good for you. You are getting an A-plus from the Jack Spearco School of Thought today. Student loans have been being made for decades. This kind of student, current student loans. Many people have been out of school 10, 20, even 30 years and still owe some or a great deal of their money, even without being delinquent or passed. Even if they were, they caught up, whatever. You got it? Okay. There, you know very well. I know somebody right now who borrowed about $50,000 in student loans, has not been to school in 12 years, and still owes over half of what he borrowed. Okay. And he's never missed a payment. He's never been late. Are you starting? To, are you getting there yet? Some of you getting a B plus now? Oh, here it comes. Here it comes. You had your chance to get there on your own. And I, I, I let this happen once in a while. I'm trying to let you get somewhere without just telling you. It is preposterous that half of this debt is being carried by students that are currently in two to five years of education. You get it? You shouldn't have half of long-term debt all being owed by people who aren't even paying on it yet, who aren't even expected to start paying on it for several years. You're seeing the balloon at the end of this cycle, guys. This is a hockey stick. Right? What that means is everybody in higher education currently incurring additional debt. Okay, If you're in your third year of school, you're going to do another year of borrowing before you get out, okay? Everybody in that two to five year range, from community college up to the people that take an extra year to get through, and let's forget the people from National Lampoon's, uh, you know, movies that take eight years to get out of college. Just say two to five years is a pretty solid average of time people spend in college. Owe more money than all of the people who have ever borrowed money and yet to pay it back. This is catastrophic. This is catastrophic. That means the debt's been doubled by active students in the past five years. Really think about that. And people have been struggling to pay these loans back for decades. At least the last two decades. This has been a major point. Students are not making enough money to pay their, their, their debts off. They're going to be in debt for the rest of their life from student loans, et cetera, et cetera. All while the government goes, it's okay because everybody knows you make more money with a degree. Keep borrowing, keep whatever. Let me read the rest and we'll come back and talk about this. So instead of 11.5% being seriously delinquent, it actually amounts to twice that amount of 23%. So 23% of people with student loans who actually have to make payments on them are delinquent. That's their point. My point, again, is how many haven't even had to start making payments yet? Half the debt in a five-year window of something that has an average payback time of 30 years. That should start to make your stomach twist, guys. All right? Not only that, but the bank's numbers don't include uh, problems don't include problems in the making. Loans with payments that are currently between 30 and 90 days late – 
nor does it take into account the value of the contracts that are in forbearance or those that have already become accommodated in some other way. All of this taken into consideration, no one should be surprised if way more than 23% of student loans that are in repayment are indeed troubled, which is precisely what is so terribly frustrating about the current news cycle. Just about every presidential candidate has a plan to help students finance higher education. We hear talk of a future filled with free tuition schemes, venture-capitalized student financing, and consumer-driven models, whatever that means. They incorporate learn online learning. Years ago, my corporate college colleagues and I referred to this type of hype as vaporware. That sounds, that sounds great. Promises to do a lot, yet not, ava not yet available, but coming really, really soon, honest. I say that because no presidential hopeful has articulated a plan to candidly acknowledge the enormous scope of this problem and deal with it in a constructively comprehensive manner other than for some hand-wringing about interest rates and how they're too high and need to be reduced so borrowers can catch a break by refinancing their debts at lower rates. Vaporware. And not just because of the political will to reduce student loan rates is probably non-existent. When you consider ideologically divided government, lawmakers would have to find a way to replace the revenues that will be lost when the government program that generates about $50 billion in annual profits is transformed into one that nearly breaks even. Oh, you, you didn't know that? Yeah, your government makes about $50 billion off of these students a year. $50 billion. That, that runs pretty big departments like... Homeland Security, I think, has a budget of about $50 billion a year. Let's, let's just see if that's true. Well, I missed that one. $38.2 billion. $38.2 billion in Homeland Security. You could throw in the Department of Commerce and about $8 billion a year, and uh, uh, your students are, 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 spending, are losing enough money to the government and the government profiting off of their loans right now to pay for the Department of Commerce and the Department of Homeland Security and there's still about 10 billion bucks left over. So that's what the government stands to lose if they stop making this stuff profitable to the government. What do you think the companies that actually make money on this stand to lose if they do the same thing? I mean, do you understand how much money we're talking about here and how many of these colleges are employing people for an awful lot of money with all kinds of benefits that are also profiting off the back of these loans. Now, I'm on record saying what's going to happen to the education system. The whole thing's going to be torn apart. The whole thing's going to be ripped asunder. Okay, and that it's going to be replaced largely by self-directed learning, corporate-driven nanodegrees, meaning companies that say, we don't care if you have 18th century French literature. These are the things we want competency in. We want people trained to do these things. Right, and this is all. I, I said that, and it was like six months later. The term started falling out of the cracks with companies like Microsoft actually creating nano degrees and working with colleges to provide them. Um, so that's going to happen. So you think, well, that's great. Well, hold on. Where are you in this? Where are you in this? Are you the 28 year old millennial just getting out of college and getting your first job with ninety thousand dollars in loans? Or are you the eight-year-old millennial that has another ten uh, to twelve years before you enter college that will enter college under a new paradigm where it costs considerably less to get your education because you can take a specific tuned course, uh, a set of courses for a specific type of education and do so largely by never stepping foot in the classroom? As these, these, these dinosaur institutions begin to die, which one are you?
Now, 10 years after that, which one of those two people has the real advantage in life? See, I think we're seeing the dawn of a generation of young people that are going to be kind of in a position for totally different reasons as the baby boomers were. Huge opportunities in front of them that were lost by the generations prior to them and a hell of a lot of pain to get there. Great Depression, World War II, things like that. Different things, same type of misery. And then you have to look at, well, what are the implications for the economy as a whole? Let's just look at the debt. Okay, The debt here is over a trillion dollars. Half of which owed by people who haven't even earned a dime toward paying it back yet, or even been sent a bill yet. Now, think about trying to bail this type of a thing out. If I'm working my ass off to pay my student loan debts and you start bailing people out, what incentive do I have to not become one of those that needs to be bailed out? Not to mention, can the government bail out the student loan mess? It's, it's, do, do you, do you understand? Do you understand 1.2 trillion? The 2015 budget of the United States is a mind staggering 3.9 trillion dollars. 3.9 trillion. This is 25%. 25% of the annual budget of the United States owed by people to pay for something that has no convertible value. What do I mean by convertible value? Let's say I finance a car for $10,000. And let's say for whatever reason I'm unable to use that car five years later. And, uh, you know, I bought the car for $10,000. It was a used car at the time. But I've, I've kept it in relatively decent shape. It's, it's quite conceivable I might sell such a car for $5,000. There's an open market. There's a price on this car. I can go out and dump this car. Even if it's a piece of shit, it's worth $1,100, $1,500. So somebody needs a beater to get by for a year until they can afford a better car. There's, a, there's an underlying asset. There's a convertible value. If I buy a house, assuming I don't burn it down and the housing bubble doesn't blow up again, the house is probably going to be worth about what I paid for it or more. Over 10 years, in most instances, real estate will have an appreciating value. I can actually discharge the underlying asset at a profit. Okay, well, when you spend $150,000 on a house, that is the case. When you spend $150,000 on your education, that is not the case. Now, it's sold to you as though it is. An education is priceless, blah, 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 blah. The ad education only has value subject to your ability with talent, drive, determination, physical and mental health, and economic reality to make use of it. You can't sell it to somebody else. We have over a trillion dollars in debt on a non-asset. And education is not an asset. It's not an asset. It's not an asset. It's not an asset. It doesn't mean it doesn't have value, but it's not an asset. You think it's an asset? You want to prove it? Okay, show me where it goes on a balance sheet. Show me where it goes on a balance sheet. Show where value of education on a balance sheet. Show me one. Harvard education, value equals. Where is it? It's not on a balance sheet? No? No? Okay, it's not an asset. If it was an asset, you can bet your ass the government will want you to account for it so they could tax you on it. 
It does sort of kind of end up on a balance sheet, though. It either ends up as an expense if you're paying as you go, or it becomes what? A liability. A liability. Because it's a debt. We have sold these young people the concept of education being an asset, and it doesn't even appear on a balance sheet. You know, I learned enough in accounting in 10th grade to be able to determine that education wasn't an asset. But they sure as hell sold it to me as one. I'm glad I didn't believe them. Now, am I saying there's no value in going to college or whatever? No. But I'm saying we are paying way more than the value of it. And the only reason we can do that is by artificially disturbing the market by making financing so easy to get. Make no payments until you graduate. Take five years to graduate. We don't care. Make a very small payment in the beginning. They'll get bigger over time as you can afford to pay more. It sounds great. And if tuition prices and living expenses didn't run away, it actually could work. But that's not how markets work. When you make funding easily accessible, you drive up prices. Hello? And when this thing falls apart, you're talking about universities going bankrupt. Thousands of employees losing their jobs with nowhere to go. If 10 colleges went bankrupt next year, where do all their employees go? What are they qualified to do? What's a history professor at a college qualified to do? Teach history, tutor history, write books. Who's hiring in that environment? And if they are hiring, who are they hiring? They're hiring the very best to work for less than they were paid in the past, and they're getting rid of people, and they're upgrading their talent. This is the big one, and this is coming. For a variety of reasons. Again, we have financed the non-asset as though it's an asset. There's no way to recoup it. There's no way to bail it out. And technology and reality and better solutions from the market are going to kill the thing that the financing was based on. When this starts to unravel, the shit will really hit the fan, guys. This one and the other one we're not going to talk about today that falls into this category are the, is the municipal debt of the individual cities, counties, and states across the country. Everybody's worried about the federal debt. The federal government can print money. No, it's not an idea, a good idea. Yes, it results in inflation, and yes, it costs you money, but the reality is they can do it. The state of California cannot print money. The city of Los Angeles cannot print money. If they could, we'd have a much bigger problem by now, but sooner or later, the fact that they can't will become a reality to them. And they will, and you will see more and more municipal bankruptcies. These two together are the catastrophic tearing apart at, at, at when you, when you go past the event horizon of the financial black hole that we are in and have never gotten out of and never will got out of. We're going to have to go through the wormhole to the other side and radically transform our economy and our ways of life to adapt to this. You cannot fix it. You cannot put it back. So. Why am I not so worried about this fall? I got out of the way of that one. It wasn't that hard. Even if you're still in the way of that one, you could still get out of the way of it. It ain't that hard. It probably will come back some before the end of the year and give you another chance to get out of it. What comes after that, I don't know. But this, when this starts to come apart, what the hell do we do? I hope you're prepared. I hope you've built a business. I hope you've shored up your personal assets. I hope you've gotten rid of your debt. Because it's the only thing you can do. 
That's what you need to be doing right now, developing those things. Let's take another thing, maybe something a little different and a little less uh, depressing. This one is from Jason. The question is, how should we go about buying silver? I've looked at JM Bullion, and they have coins for sale of different sizes. We're looking at buying $2,000 worth of silver, that would, and we would drive to them instead of worrying about shipping. I'm excited that my wife has finally jumped on board with this, and we plan to make a routine monthly $200 purchase of silver from here on out. Thank you for all you do, and please keep up the great work, Jason. Okay, Jason, first of all, I wouldn't drive to Jam Bullion to pick up my silver. I know where you live, and I know where they are, and it will cost you a great deal of money and gas and time to go get your $2,000 worth of silver. I would contact JM Bullion and say, hey, if we're going to buy $2,000 worth, we'd like to buy some insurance on the shipping, and I would purchase insurance on that shipping, and it would cost you less. That's my first piece of advice. Do not drive. I don't even know if they'll do that. I don't even know if they'll do personal handover delivery. Um, they're really an online reseller. So we've not had any problems with people losing their shipments from JM Bullion, and uh, a lot of that has to do with the way the stuff is shipped. So even though I've made comments in the past, which is true, The, the post office of this country uh, employs thieves who steal out of the mail and have stolen silver from me that you guys have sent me to pay for memberships. It's always been loose silver, and the packaging always could have been better. And many times, a lot of our mail ends up in common carriers. Uh, in other words, the post office just dumps a whole bunch of mail on some private company and says, here's a fee, take it from here to here, and they take it back up again. Yeah, Many people don't know that. A lot of thievery happens in that type of situation as well. So even though I don't necessarily trust the post office, I'm going to tell you that insuring your, your package will cost you less than driving there to get it. Now, if you just want to go there anyway, and if the folks there are okay with that, and you have some other things to do and you just want to take the trip to take the trip, that's fine. But do not drive all the way to Jam Bullion because you're buying $2,000 worth of silver. Jason, please don't do that. Okay, and certainly don't do it every month to pick up 200 bucks worth. Jeez. Anyway, um, what would I buy? If I were dead set on buying physical silver right now and I was going to invest $2,000, I would buy uh, American Silver Eagles. I would buy American Silver Eagles. I would contact them and I would say I want to do a bank wire, which will save you a little bit of money. And I would say I have some concerns about shipping. What are my options to make shipping a little bit more insured? And what is it going to cost me? That's what I would do. If I was buying anything right now in quantity, I would buy Silver Eagles. And here's why. The premium isn't that much. If you're buying silver for the long haul, the dollar premium here or there is not going to be something you really worry about. There are some definite tax advantages to smelling, selling small amounts of Silver Eagles. Um, they are the most traded and recognized silver coin in the United States, and pretty much throughout the world. Um, silver is silver, that is true, but no one questions the purity of a U.S. minted silver eagle. And that's what I would buy, personally. You could buy anything you want, though. You know, If you want to buy $500 worth of eagles, $500 worth of rounds, $500 worth of bars, some 10-ounce bars, whatever, whatever floats your boat, but if you wanted the, 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 the purest investment-grade silver with the best tradability, convertibility back to cash, Silver Eagles. If you want to play the short-term silver market, don't buy Silver Eagles, don't buy Silver Bars, buy a Silver ETF, which I wouldn't do right now. I think silver's coming down yet some. Enough that I'd say don't invest $2,000 in this right now? I don't know. I don't know. 
I'm not sure. I think that this economic downturn is not going to immediately spike commodity prices. It's going to suppress them further before they begin to make a, a run back. Because commodities are based on purchasing. So unless a lot of money runs to silver, and let's face it, a lot of money has left silver over the past uh, five years, There's, I don't think we're at the silver floor, but I don't think it's that far away. So I wouldn't, you know, if you're going to be holding silver for 10 years, I wouldn't even blink uh, at whether or not to make the investment right now. I'd say, you know, go ahead and start doing your, 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 your purchasing. Um, and because I don't know, it, it probably makes more sense to do that than to say, okay, well, what we're going to do is amateurize our purchase. And that is another option, right? So one way you could look at this, if your intended goal is to invest $2,000 in silver and then go to uh, $200 a month, then $2,000 over the next year is only $166. So what you could do to kind of feel out the market is just up your monthly purchase over the next 12 months. And if you start to think it's going to take a run, then go ahead and dump the rest in. So if you bought about $370 bucks worth of silver this year per month for the next 12 months, or not this year, for the next 12 months, and then dropped it to $200 on month 13, you'd end up in the same place as far as total money spent. Um, with free shipping from Jambully on, on orders over $100, every shipment would be small enough there'd be a hell of a lot less at risk. You'd save a road trip. And there'd be no additional cost, especially if you set it up to do with uh, a bank wire. It would, you know, again, cost less to buy with bank wire. Now, what I would also do is I would decide on a, a strategy of rounding up or down based on your target investment and the reality of silver prices. And I wouldn't be trying to throw in a, a tenth of an ounce to make up the difference. And there's a big premium on stuff like that. You buy that for barter purposes or whatever. And I would go with 90% American silver coin for that. Um, and, and, and frankly, a lot of that can be sourced locally, probably better than buying through the mail from anybody. So silver eagles or silver rounds, you know, 99.99 pure, what you want. But either make the big purchase up front like you want to or amateurize it over the next 12 months or six months. You could do that as well. But don't drive to pick up $2,000 worth of silver. It's, it's really not worth it, not in my opinion anyway. Let's go ahead and take another one. Here's an interesting, somewhat political one. This is from Tim. Tim says, What do you make of all the candidates the GOP is putting up? I know very little happens by either mafia family without the Don's approval. In this case, who did Don GOP give the nod? Why did John, why did, I don't think what he's actually, he puts who, but why did Don GOP give the nod to so many candidates? What could be the reasoning behind the tactic behind this? Why, 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 why are the mafia, the GOP mafia, you know? The Democrats are playing nice. They got a couple people. They got Clinton, you know, whatever. I tell you, here, here's what I think. There's, there's one of two reasons here. The plan is for the GOP to win or the plan is for the GOP to lose. I think, as I've said before, the plan is for the GOP to win, and, and my best horse in this race is Scott Walker for the long haul. I don't think Trump's uh, 
uh, you know, little uh, little stunt here can last long enough to get to the end. I think this this makes Trump have a big ego boost, and it makes ups his brand. And I I think that's what this is all about. I don't think when the people are actually faced with it that they actually vote for a Donald Trump. I don't think this country can stomach a Bush or a Clinton again. I don't think we can. I don't think either side wants that. I mean, and what I mean is I don't think that the people that voted for Bush the first time want another one. Though I, I think you'd find a lot more people that would defend their vote for Bill Clinton and do so with a pretty decent job uh, than you would find people that would defend their vote for George Bush. Other than the guy, other guy was worse. I mean, if you make a case, like, would you rather have, like, right now, I think if you put on the ballot George Bush Jr. versus Bill Clinton and took 15 years of age off of both of them so they were more analogous to what they were when they were in the White House, Bill Clinton would win the election. I'm not saying that I want that. I'm saying I think the American people would take Bill Clinton over George Bush right now, today. But I think even the people that would say that, even the people that would say, I, I would take Bill Clinton back, don't want Hillary. Like she's just unelectable. Just wholly unelectable. So that's why I end up with Scott Walker. But then why all of these GOP clowns? For some of them, it's their last chance. See, I do think the Mafia Don decides who gets to the, to, to win the final dance. But I, I don't think that there's really anything that prevents anybody from just trying to get the nod. I think some of these things, some of these people just have political ideologies. I think some of these people just want to see what happens. I think some of these people want to add presidential candidate to their speaker's resume or three-time presidential candidate or two-time presidential candidate to their speaker's resumes. I mean, why not? They're not spending that much money. Some of these people that are also rands, they've been here before, they still have money in their war chest. They can't get it out directly, but they can spend it this way. Um, I think some of them are vying for eventual cabinet positions. I think that's a big part of this or lobbyist positions, or whatever, when their guy takes over. I think that the, the prevailing winds are, one way or another, you have a Republican president in 2016. And all of these people want to be in the main limelight, so that they have some role in that. I think that's the agenda here. Um, you know, And there's people that I, I think are there just because of their ideology, period. Mike Huckabee. I, I don't think Mike Huckabee... Is under any delusions that he's going to be president of the United States. I don't think he's going to be secretary of anything. I don't think he's going to be anything other than maybe go back to being a talk show host. Um, so I think he's there for his ideology. I just want the floor. I want to speak. That's who I am. I, I think people like um, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are there because they think they have a future and they need to be here now. Right, they need to be seen and heard now for future elections. I think people like Scott Walker really think they can win and have a good shot at it. Uh, I think some of these other people, I'm really struggling with what they're doing. But I, I do think some of them are hoping that, you know, President Walker, President Bush, President Trump, President Unknown, some guy that comes into the race late that we don't even think of, will say. You know, the public really liked this guy's stance on issue X. Even though they liked me better and I won, they liked this guy. So I think that they're vying for where are their positions in the family when the family takes over the five boroughs again. All right? 
That's, that's the mafia movement here. Understand that even though the Don makes the final call, there's all kinds of struggles within the family and within the peripheral families to get as much as you can. And the Don wants the most murderous guy in a position that requires murder. He wants the guy best at extorting money and the guy that requires the job that requires the head of extortion. And that's what these people are doing right now. And I think some of them are ideologues. They really believe in what they're doing. And, and they're the ones they're never going to get anywhere. Now, here's a wild thought. Um, I listened to somebody I never listened to anymore, with good reason, this weekend on an iPhone app, uh, Alex Jones. And the only reason I listened is he was interviewing Jesse Ventura. And while Jesse and I don't certainly agree on everything or what have you, I am always interested in Jesse's take. I think that Jesse's take, whether he's got it right or not, is honest and, and rather informed. I mean, this is a former governor. And he said that he really thinks you could be looking at an election in 2016 between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. That would be a very interesting thing. And as much as I don't want to alter my prediction of Scott Walker, and I'm not doing it yet, I would tell you this. With what's coming through the rest of this year, with what we're going to, I mean, we're going to see some really hardcore financial fallout in the spring. I, I, I know that. I feel that in my guts. And into the late winter, early spring, some really hard shit hitting the ground. It's going to come out. I think it is student loan stuff. Like this is going to get worse and worse. This is going to be the aggravating circumstance to this problem. You're going to have people bifurcate into two camps. We have to stop doing this to ourselves and run this country like a business, Trump. And we have to take care of all the people that have been victimized and and fix the problem for them by by making it go away or by paying them more money or by making money come out of thin air. Bernie Sanders. It's not a prediction. My Everything in my being looks at Donald Trump and says there's no way. But it is possible. And then here's the thing. You're either giving the country to the socialists or you're giving the country to the fascists. And they're one and the same. They're just two heads of the snake. But you know what you have in Trump and Sanders? as much as I dislike both of them in many ways, what you have in Trump and Sanders are honest men. They're thieves, but they're honest about their thievery. Trump bribes politicians, but he'll tell you, I bribe politicians, that's how the system's set up. Sanders wants to steal your money and give it to other people, but he'll tell you, I want to steal. He doesn't say steal, but we want a $15 an hour minimum wage. It's got to come from somewhere. I think he means what he says. I think both of these people are strikingly honest men for the company they keep. To be a presidential candidate, I think these are two of the most honest men. Now, what do I mean by honest? Do I mean that I would want to employ them in my business or trust them in my business? You know what? I got to tell you what. Honestly, when I actually think about that, in some ways, yes. I believe if Donald Trump made a business deal with me, and, and by the way, Trump used to be a 
a customer of mine when I was internet an internet I had ran an internet market consulting and SEO and web design company called Franklin Spirico. Donald Trump was one of our clients. They always paid their bill, and I believed it. While Bernie Sanders and I have very ideological differences, if we made a deal to do something like I'll provide this service, you'll provide this 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 fee, or I'll do this for you. And you'll do this for me, and I'll provide you a fee. If we made an agreement, shook hands on it, I believe both of those guys would keep their word. Now, I may not want the deal, but could Jesse Ventura be right where I am wrong? Anything's possible, guys. Who knows? Here's what I'd ask you, those of you that still vote. If you had a choice between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump... Which one would you hold your nose and pull the lever for? And before you just say Trump, he's not anti-establishment. He is the establishment. He can't be bought, but he is the man and the type of man who's been buying the people that could be bought the entire time. Just saying. If you made me vote, If you put a gun to my head, the more I think about it, I just might let you shoot me before I pulled either lever. Let's take one more and we'll be done for today. The last one is on Bitcoin. It says not Bitcoin, but using blockchain tech technology, and this is on Bloomberg. And it says here's a really nerdy way to buy gold, honey, or concert tickets using Bitcoin's blockchain. And it actually is Bitcoin. It says, Mark Van, Vander R. and his daughter Katie run a small honey-making business in Ohio, Beer Belly Bees. Earlier this year, they sold several bottles on an online marketplace called Open Bazaar using a technology that underlies Bitcoin, the blockchain. The sale of the Vander's honey was among the first e-commerce transactions to take advantage of the blockchain, which in the most basic terms is a publicly viewable online ledger that records the sale or trade of goods and services. Now, I'm going to stop reading this article and let you read the rest of it if you want to, because my problem with all of this is when you read it, I, I got the same opinion of it with confusion uh, that Chris, who sent me the article, is like, it's not Bitcoin, it's using the blockchain. Oh, it is Bitcoin. And it's using the blockchain to do other things. I decided to look into this company called Open Bazaar. And for those of you that have heard me talk about virtual nations and conflict resolution and things like that, you're about to hear some very familiar things. It's not to the level of a virtual nation yet, but boy, wait till you hear this. The Open Bazaar blog, what is Open Bazaar? Open Bazaar is an open source project to create a decentralized network for peer-to-peer -peer commerce online. For those of you that don't know what that says, that means two computers acting as peers equals being able to exchange information in a way that enables you to buy or sell something. Okay, Using Bitcoin, so it does use Bitcoin, that has no fees and cannot be censored. Simply put, it's, it's the baby eBay of the... It's the baby of eBay and the BitTorrent. Right now, online commerce mean you, means using centralized services. eBay, Amazon, and other big companies have restrictive policies, charge fees for listings, and selling goods. They only accept forms of payment that cost both buyers and sellers money, such as credit cards or PayPal. 
They require personal information, which can lead to being stolen or even sold to others for advertising or worse. Buyers and sellers aren't always aware, aren't always free to exchange goods and services with each other, as companies and governments censor entire categories of trade. Open Bazaar is a different approach to online commerce. It puts the power back in the user's hands. Instead of buyers and sellers going through centralized service, Open Bazaar connects them directly because there's no one in the middle of the transactions. There are no fees, no one can censor transactions, and you only reveal the personal information that you choose. How does Open Bazaar work? This is where it gets interesting. Let's say that you're looking to sell an old laptop. Using the Open Bazaar client, a program you download, you create a new product listing on your computer with details just like you would on any e-commerce site, and you ask for a price in Bitcoin. When you publish that listing, it's sent out to the distributed P2P network, that's peer-to-peer, of other people using Open Bazaar. Anyone who searches for the keywords you've used, laptops, electronics, etc., can find your listing, and they can accept your price or offer up a new price. If you both agree to a price, the client creates a contract between you you both with your digital signatures. Now, the client is the software client. Okay, So client, we often think of a person. So when it says, if you both agree, the client, think of it, the software creates a contract between you and your digital signatures. And it sends it to a third party called a notary. In the case of a dispute, an arbiter can be brought into the transaction. These third-party notaries and arbiters are folks on the Open Bazaar network. It could be your neighbor or someone across the world, who the, bu- who the buyer and the seller trust in case something goes wrong. The third party witnesses the contract and creates a multi-signature Bitcoin account, or multi-sig, that requires two of the three people to agree before the Bitcoin can be released. The buyer then sends the agreed-upon amount to the multi-sig address. When you get a notification saying the buyer has sent funds, you ship the laptop to them and mark that it has been shipped. The buyer receives it a few days later, and they mark it as received, which releases the funds from the multi-sig to you. You've got your Bitcoin. The buyer has their laptop. No fees are paid. No one stopped your trade. Everyone is happy. You can read the rest if you want to, but I know what's going on. Young people and computer people are going, holy crap, it's half of Jack's virtual nation right there. This is awesome. This is cool. I see how this works. And older people and non-technologically oriented people are going, what is this? It'll never work. No one will understand this. No one gets it. Okay. If I read to you the back round how an Amazon order is processed, you would also go, you don't have to know. It's called a GUI, Graphic User Interface. What's a GUI? Almost everything you interface with is a GUI. There's code behind the scene. When you're posting to a blog, you're looking at a GUI. It makes it easy for you. When you're on Facebook and you're making a comment or uploading a picture, you don't know how it works. You just know that it works. That's what this technology is evolving into. I want to sell this. This is my price. The only thing you're doing is pricing in Bitcoin, and we can make the GUI convert your currency to Bitcoins. Yep. You just say, I want 50 bucks for this, and it just says, that's, you know, point whatever Bitcoin. Okay, I don't care. Right? And then you go to sell it, and do you? And it, this is going to be optional. Do you want 
a third party. And people that are selling, allowing a third party will have an advantage in selling. And where's the fee? Well, the third party guy probably does charge a fee. I don't know, 10 cents a transaction? Way cheaper than PayPal. It probably sets his own price because it's free market. Got it? Okay. So then you basically say, I'm selling a laptop. Somebody wants to buy it. You agree, and you look at where they are, and you say, well, I'm going to ship it to you. This is how much shipping is going to be because you're not where I thought you'd be. You're not across the street. You're across the planet. So this is how much shipping is. You agree to that? And everybody's happy, and then the price is finalized, and they say, you say, send me uh, half a Bitcoin, whatever. Send. And then when the Bitcoin gets into the account, you know that they've released it, but now it's sitting with the third party and them. And now it has to be released to you. Either you and the third party or the third party and the buyer can release it. Any two of you can release it. Okay? But you don't have to know that. All you have to know is you send your laptop... And then once once it's verified the laptop's been received, you go, give me my money. Boom, there's the money. And that way, fraud is just suppressed to almost nothing. Now, do you have to do it that way? No, if you read the rest of this article, it says, if two people just want to exchange right away, they can. These are additional services available. Now, you might not employ a third-party arbitrator for a a $200 laptop because it's not worth it. Just like when you ship something. I want to put insurance on this. Or not. It depends on what it is. What are the risks? What if you lose it? Do you really care? So you make that decision later. But what about contracts? Let's say if I'm doing coding work for you. I say I'm going to build this site. I'm going to charge you $12,000 in coding hours. Well, all of that money, so you're like, I, I'm not starting the job until I know you have the $12,000 worth of Bitcoin. And I say, well, I'm not giving you, buddy, I've been through it with contractors. I'm not giving you $12,000. Well, I want half down. Oh, no. You haven't laid down a line of code yet. So in the contract, we say each milestone, when met, releases a certain amount of Bitcoin. It goes into this third-party service, and a third-party person looks at it and verifies, yeah, that was done. And we decide how much he gets paid. Guys, that's virtual nation all over it. We can handle marriages that way, guys. I'm dead serious. This is the evolution of human commerce. Here's the problem. You might think the governments of the world would be losing their mind over this and that the financial institutions of the world would be losing their mind over this. And for a while they were. They, they attempted to destroy Bitcoin and all virtual currencies and everything like this. They slandered it. They put it in TV shows and movies. And someone named Spirico told you they were going to do this. And about the time when the fervor had reached a pitch, when it looked like they were going to make Bitcoin illegal and start issuing licenses to have Bitcoin and use that just to suppress it into nothingness. And Russia said Bitcoin was illegal. And it looked like it was the, the death soon coming to Bitcoin. Before it started to happen, Jack told you another thing. I said, it's over. They've given up. They're going to tacitly accept it, and actually they're going to start making it okay. And next thing you know, it became acceptable for you to make contributions to your political candidate of choice in Bitcoin. Major corporations started taking it, and all of a sudden the slander campaign sort of went away. What this means is that the governments and financial institutions of the world have looked at Bitcoin and things like it, and what they've said to themselves is, we can't stop this. 
for as much power as it has, less than 1% of the people in the developed world even understand it and are even willing to use it. One out of a hundred are willing to do this, and look what it's doing already. What happens when 5% to 10% of the population are willing to routinely use Bitcoin? They start doing the numbers, and they realize there's nothing they can do about it. So what does government do when it can't prevent something? It co-ops it. So this is going to be the this is going to be the financial battlefield where people are going to have to decide do they trust each other or do they trust the state? Because the state is going to bring its own solution, its own legislative and regulatory framework into this world. It may try a full-on co-option. The governments in the world have united to change the financial system for the better. This is a wonderful thing. The private sector showed us how to do this. We just need the government to ensure trust here. Like the network doesn't do that itself. And then people will have to decide, do I trust the government or do I trust the financial network? Because here's the thing, guys. For years I've told you, I think that eventually when this whole financial system explodes, for real, the real big pop at the end of the giant bubble that is the last 120 years that they will have to rebase the currency and for a long time I thought they might go back to a gold standard with some kind of weird leverage point or a commodity basket could this framework be the new currency could it give them something they've always effectively wanted a global cashless society I mean in many ways guys cash is outdated this is economically where we should be evolving toward. But I don't think either the fascists that have controlled the economics of this this world for thousands of years, nor the elitists that have controlled the governments of this world should have authority over it. This can be the most liberating thing the world has ever seen, or it can become the complete and total control of every transaction that ever happens, ever. This technology can be as anonymous as you want it to be, or as public as you want it to be, or as anonymous to some and as public to others as you want it to be. If I'm a government bureaucrat, if I'm a financial elitist, I have to figure out a different way to steal money and make my fees, or steal taxes and get my taxes. But with this machine tuned up the right way, I can make sure a penny never gets by. That I don't tax. Which way will it go? It pains me to say it. The truth is, it will go whichever way the majority of people choose to turn. If the majority of people in a free society decide to trust the state versus trust each other, it will go the way of the state. The only way this will bring us what we should have. A virtual form of anarchy. An ability to do business with who we choose, as we choose, when we choose, how we choose, why we choose, and involve people we want to and not involve people we don't, will be for people to realize that they can trust each other more than they can trust the government and more than they can trust the banks. But for all the talk of not trusting the government and not trusting the banks, where do the majority of people put their trust? It will be up to us who go first, 
who work in these virtual nations, who work with these systems and these blockchains and with these virtual currencies and develop these contract resolutions to develop such a framework that people go, well, I trust that way more than I trust the government. But history has shown us that's a tough nut to crack. Will it happen? I don't know. But in the long run, my money's on this. That even if most people turn to trust the state, this technology is too innovative for them to really control. And there will always be an insurrection within it. And that insurrection is one of the main ways that we can fight for better control of our own lives. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut